Hey, I'm Pastor Dave Ferguson. Welcome to Crosswalk Chattanooga's Weekend Teaching Podcast. We're glad you're with us. Well, good morning, Crosswalk. How are you today? Doing well? Doing all right? Uh, We are launching our Christmas season series called Adventure. We're going to take a look at a variety of adventurous perspectives on the Christmas story and check into a God who I think is a God of adventure. I think, though, that as we start, it might be, it might be healthy for us, just to be honest, to have an opportunity for confession, uh, public confession, Daniel. So uh, if you don't mind, and, and you know, you're welcome to have your head on the swivel just a little bit. Um, if you don't mind, all those who have had Christmas decorations up for a full month at this point, raise your hand. Is there anybody? Is there anybody here? Yes, we have a few. We have a few. And I can see, I can see what happened just then, Nick, is you saw another hand and you thought, okay, I can say it too. Yeah. It, yeah, I'm not sure if it counts if they're still up from last year, but that's a whole different confession. Well, as we kind of get, store, get started and we're, we're kind of working on unpacking a particularly unique, adventurous perspective on the Christmas story, I thought maybe we could start uh, by playing a little Christmas carol game. But if you don't mind, I'm going to just, we're going to be going down, traveling down through a story today that is easily found in a couple of places, Matthew chapter 2 and Luke chapter 2. We're not just going to read all the way down through them, but if you haven't done this, if you've got little children and you're in a family, just, just to read the Christmas story through Luke, for instance, is awesome and wonderful. And we're going to be poking around in it there and in Matthew chapter 2. But Uh, I'd like to play a, are you okay with games, big group games? Thank you, Russ. I saw your head nodding. Here's how we're going to do this particular game. I'm going to put a couple of words or one word on the screen. These are from Christmas carols, and you see if you can finish it out loud. Some of you um, probably shouldn't sing. Others of you, that might be okay. But we'll see how this goes. Okay, so here's our start. All right? Yes, we three kings of Orient are, and you got to kind of be there for each other, or else you're going to kind of let just a couple of people end up dominating this whole thing, and then they win all the money. Uh, but <clears throat> here's, the, here's the second one. First Noel, good. You're getting a little bit of a hark. You can do it with even just one word, right? That's right. Joy to the world. What do you got here? Yeah, that one's easy. How about this one? <laughs> Manger. Yeah, a little town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. I'm going to just go through it. You can think of the words in your head as I'm going. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Do you know what's next? How still we see thee lie, right? Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Little town of Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2 starts this way in, in the first verse. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And in fact, this is a town of prophecy. This is where the Messiah was said to be coming. All the way back in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, a prophet had foretold, Micah had said that the Messiah will come to a little specific town of Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. The one. By the way, at the time of Jesus, there are two Bethlehems, actually. There's not just one Bethlehem. And we sing about, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and suddenly it becomes a big town of the Christmas carol, right? But it is a very tiny, tiny town. Probably at the time of Christ, the little town of Bethlehem had potentially about a 1,000 people that lived in it, if you count the shepherds that are in the hills. Tiny little town. And it is actually in the outskirts of, it's almost indistinguishable from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem bleeds south into this little town of Bethlehem. It's almost in Jerusalem. In fact, if you were at the temple in Jerusalem and decided, let's go for a walk, uh, let's just walk south along these roads and uh, trails and we'll end up in the little town of Bethlehem. And it might take you, if you were just an average walking speed, about an hour and a half to walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. On the other hand, there's another Bethlehem that is near Nazareth. This is a key town in our story, is it not? Because there's a carpenter, young man, who is engaged to be married to a young lady, Mary, and he lives in Nazareth. They are from Nazareth. And so that's about a four days camelback ride or donkey ride from Nazareth in the north down straight through Jerusalem. To Bethlehem. And so it's being specific when this prophet Micah says in Bethlehem, no, 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 not just any Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of Judah, the Bethlehem Ephrathah, not the other Bethlehem. It's the one right outside of Jerusalem. All right. So I'd like to make a bold claim here. Uh, And the, the claim is I think that every good father figures out the eye roll they want to generate. Some some fathers receive eye rolls for things they're not going for, and we know that. And some fathers generate a lot more eye rolling than others. But I think every good father, you know, if you're a younger person in this room and you think of your father, you think of some of the things that you're rolling your eyes, I'm just going to promise you, some of what you roll your eyes about, your dad's doing it on purpose. (laughs) To get the eye roll. Just saying. It's true for me. I'm going to tell you something I've never told my children. In fact, it was this earlier today that my wife heard me say this for the first time. I'm going to admit something to you. So our family loves humor. I've always loved humor. I've always loved helping people laugh and laughing myself. Our family laughs really easily. And most every member of our family takes turns being the funny one. And we have a great time. I've worked all my life with youth and young adults and in my public speaking. Initially, I tried not to involve humor because I was told it was bad. And it, it was awful. I felt like I was chained up. I couldn't move. So along the way, I decided I'm, I'm scrapping that and I'm just going to talk the way that my mind works. And so people laugh at times and usually often when I was hoping. And so every once in a while, my kids got used to people coming to them or saying to them or hearing somebody say to my wife, so do you laugh this much at home? Which is a weird thing to say. But once you've heard it a number of times, it became kind of the inside joke in our family, right? (laughs) Do you laugh as much at home? Dad, right? Okay, so here's the deal. My kids understand this part. They know about it. They would tell you about it. It's well known in my family that for me, the points get scored if Carolyn laughs. 
That's what, that's, so it's not just doing something that everybody laughs at. Okay, that's great. But if she laughs, that's the higher level. So over time, my kids would have moments where she laughs at something and they don't laugh at it. They think it's corny or whatever and they roll their eyes and then they realize that I actually don't care because <laughs> I just did what I was trying to do. What they don't know is that this has morphed into a whole other level. Now, the highest level of laughter for me is not just making my wife laugh, but is to thread that narrow pathway where she laughs and they roll their eyes. Oh, that's the best. And it doesn't work always because, of course, sometimes no one laughs. Then there are times everybody laughs. Duh. I'm shooting for her laughing and everybody else going, duh, dad. And when they roll their eyes, I can tell because, I mean, they can't hide it. They actually like it that my playfulness is interested in her. And so I can tell it's not like, uh, one more of these, dad, and we're gone, never again to return. <laughs> no, the eye roll is so dad. It's so completely dad. Good one. You got her. I think every good dad well-knowingly generates some eye roll. And I think our Father in Heaven is included in that comment. I think he does stuff sometimes just waiting to see the eye roll of Heaven, right? And it could start with a furrowed brow. What? Oh, so him. That's so Jesus. That's so God. And I'm going to suggest to you, as we consider how this story of Christmas rolls on out in the story of Bethlehem, that part of what's going on here is God loves generating the eye roll of heaven. Bethlehem's not predictable. And you might think it is because David was born in Bethlehem. David, but keep, keep in mind, think about that story. Bethlehem is just a shepherd town. It's a nothing place and God is looking for a king and he sends his, his prophet Samuel to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem goes through and, okay, it's going to be from this particular household. It's not a predictable household. And then along the way, they start bringing out sons. And then it's not the predictable sons, it's the little guy. Because of what all happens in the life of David, we can sometimes, if we're not careful, turn Bethlehem into a bigger deal than it was. It's not a big deal at all. And it's in the shadow of Jerusalem. But God is so completely about that kind of eye roll. In fact, as we consider this story of Bethlehem, a punctuation mark probably ought to be added by this notion that God chooses the little things. Repeatedly. Little things in crazy kinds of ways. It's not just the town of Bethlehem. He's going to send an angel to a, a girl turning into a woman. In equivalency for our day and age, it might be a freshman in college. 
And he's going to say, by the way, he's going to send the angel with this particular message. Do not be afraid. You are pregnant. <laughs> Which, under some circumstances, might just be, yeah, I was wondering. But that's not Mary's situation. Don't fear. You are pregnant, and you're going to give birth to God. Great news. And her world, by the way, is filled with both wonder and it is wrecked. Because her family will question, is she who we thought she was? She'll lose relationships. Friends will disappear. And in fact, the person that she is betrothed to marry has now questions to ask himself. But it's not even, given the story, it's not even a predictable woman to choose. And he's going to go to someone who's never been a mom, who has, is well away from even considering it. And then, then the, the husband in the situation to be is a, is a nobody. He's a carpenter. That doesn't make him a nobody, but he's from a nobody town. And, and you know, he's, he's not, in fact, town doesn't have that great a reputation. He's a working class, low-income father. You know, all of this is predictable once you start hanging out with this Jesus or this God. And, and you get used to the eye roll moment. Yes, Jesus comes and God comes to save humanity. But imagine the announcement in heaven, he's going to do it by becoming one of the humans. Furrowed, brow of confusion turned, oh, wow, yeah, that is so him. So completely him. I mean, he's the God who will part sees and will speak through donkeys and will continually surprise us and do things that make no sense to many. Think about this. He doesn't just come as a human being. I mean, you can imagine there in Jerusalem, uh, I don't know how you would design it, but maybe he's descending from the heavens, you know, glory and not as an angel choir in that situation. And he's a full-grown man who's speaking words that are just lovely and make sense. And Now, that's not what's going to happen here. He's going to come as a little baby at a time when infant mortality was like 50-50 shot. And they're going to be in Bethlehem. Now, problem is, Mary, Joseph, they're down in Nazareth. How is this even going to work that they end up in Bethlehem? Well, God has this figured out as well because a census is going to be sent out. Taxes are going to be required. And in fact, God has it arranged that his prophecy is coming true because Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth and travel the four days by donkey. Think about that. Here she is just about to give birth at a time when pregnancy was dangerous, not just for the baby, but for the mom. And so she takes a four-day donkey ride. Anybody here been on a donkey for four days? Yeah. As they make their way, think about it. It's actually kind of dangerous what they're doing. Consider that it's possibly more dangerous for her to stay in her hometown than to get on this donkey for four days and go with Joseph. He at least is the one person who seems to believe her story. And off they go. In fact, Luke tells it this way. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, 
the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He was required to go to pay the taxes. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So they go on this dangerous journey. They arrive there in Bethlehem. It couldn't have been a comfortable situation. And she is in the process of giving birth now. And there is no place they can stay. They don't have the money to afford or whatever the circumstance is. The next thing you know, there they are in the lowly manger, meek and mild. And, you know, I mean, you can imagine it. First of all, there are cottony clouds. It's a very, it's a very specific shaped kind of a situation there. There's a cow. It's amazing. There's a cow, a donkey. There is a sheep, one single sheep. And... Oddly, on occasion, a camel wanders into this scene. Angels perched over. Lovely, childlike shepherds. And if we're not careful, we create this beautiful, lovely scene that it was not in the slightest of ways. I don't know how many of you have had children. But in that moment, thinking, you know what, I, you know what this is missing? A cow. And everything they would dump on the floor, that would be what we could really do with in here. Livestock, that's what I want to be surrounded with as I'm gritting my teeth and being told to breathe. (laughs) Ah, thank goodness there's a goat. No, they are what the world would consider destitute alone, not good enough. And this is where Jesus chooses to come, to this little, tiny, backwater, no stoplight, doesn't have a quick mart town of Bethlehem. And he is inches away from the city of all cities. But he chooses to come to Bethlehem. Surely there were people who were important that he could have come to. A mom who had already demonstrated that she was great at being a mom. Surely there was someone that if Jesus were born into that family, attention would be paid in a whole different way. But this is God in his eye roll moment. And all of heaven looking on, sniffing the manure, is going, so God, really, to come here, to come like this, to come in this place. Of Bethlehem. So a baby is born with no place to be, and it is God. And the only audience for this seems to be shepherds, nomadic shepherds, or the townspeople who spend their nights in the field. They are low. And you say, well, but what about the kings? What about the three kings? Three kings. In fact, we read about them in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These three kings, um, by the way, we think of them as three kings because of the song, We Three Kings, which, which where were they from? Well, from Orient are, right? Which I think, I think that's Japan, right? 
So we got three kings. By the way, the number three is because of three gifts, not because there are three kings. It doesn't say three kings. In fact, here's the likely truth of what's going on here is you have a group of individuals from somewhere in the neighborhood of what is current day Iran who have been studying prophecies and a bunch of different religions and they have stumbled likely upon some of the fragments of the Torah, of the Old Testament scriptures. They've had interviews. They've been talking. They've been studying the night skies and they have decided something's going on. And maybe it's partly that they have a hunger in their heart, something that is missing, and so likely a large group of individuals who have been collaborating in their studies set off from Iran come the distance, and they're following a star. Have you ever wondered what, what happened with a star thing? Is it kind of like, you know, Shaston, we were putting up the lights, and, you know, I moved one of the Christmas tree lights, and suddenly there's a whole section that was out. So these these wise this group of individuals who are studying where the Messiah might be, and they're following a star, following a star, and then it's like out. Is that what happened? Hey, think about it. They could be following a star in the night sky, and it could perch over what seems to them to be Jerusalem, and that makes sense. Apparently, they haven't stumbled upon Micah's prophecy, and they're wondering where where it is. It would look almost the exact same for it to be perched over Jerusalem as to be perched over the four miles away Bethlehem. And so this large group of foreigners who aren't terribly quiet about what they're doing are wandering through Jerusalem. Hey, I think it's time. Do you know where the Messiah is? This rattles its way along until these three kings, these Many more than three travelers who are looking for the Messiah find their way through the city. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And in fact, all of Jerusalem, they they created a whole disturbance in all of Jerusalem that they were looking for something. This is not cool. By the way, have you ever noticed that we Christians can get a little disturbed when there's somebody else who thinks they know God and they're not calling themselves Christian? Maybe that's not really for us to be doing. Maybe we could have a conversation and explore whether we're looking for the same thing. Oh, and woe be it to us if non-believers are looking for Jesus more than we are. It is a possibility, you know. For the habit, the tradition, and the customs of Christmas and of church to overtake the Christ. And for us to rehearse Oh, little town of Bethlehem, but stay firmly planted in Jerusalem. Well, this rattles back and forth until they're somehow in front of Herod and he hears what they're looking for. And so he turns to the people who should know, right? The leaders in the church, the scholarly, the the, the rabbis, the, the Pharisees possibly, the priests. And he calls them together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ would be born. And they're not hesitant. In Bethlehem in Judea, that Bethlehem, not the other Bethlehem that's north of here, not the Bethlehem in Nazareth. It's the Bethlehem that we can see if we go out on your palace steps down the way. That's the Bethlehem. The Messiah is coming to that Bethlehem. That's what Micah says. And there's this conversation and this this group of travelers now knows okay so Bethlehem so we're headed to Bethlehem we're going to Bethlehem and they head there 
Now you, of course, have paid some at least little attention to the aftermath of this whole situation because Herod is not interested in the Messiah. He's interested in himself. It doesn't matter that at Christmas time this is all to be about the Messiah. He has turned Christmas into a story about himself. And so he tells them, look, I would love to worship too. Yeah, I'm in. Count me in. I'd love to worship also, so if you figure out exactly where he is, would you mind? Let's just make a little agreement. This will be helpful to me. I'll give you this little hint. He's in Bethlehem, maybe. And so if you don't mind coming back if you find him and let me know. Here's the thing. Some might say, well, he did not believe, actually, that the Messiah could come. I'll tell you this. He's frightened enough to decide he's going to kill all the children. Sounds like he believes something. Because they don't come back, and who knows exactly how long he has waited. It might be up to two years. But an angel helps Joseph and Mary understand they should get out of Dodge, and they head to Egypt. And instead, while they are gone and as they go away, Herod puts out a decree that and they, they, they go and slaughter the children. Now, I don't know if that part of the story has bothered you as much as it's bothered me, but... I found myself thinking, okay, so exactly how many children are we talking about here? How could you be a leader in an area and decide on that and recover? Right? Seems seems hard to come back from. Again, even counting the shepherds in the hills, Bethlehem was a town of maybe about a thousand, and historians suggest to us that if you took an average town or a group of individuals of, histori- of, 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 of historians. If a town of historians shows up, didn't worry. <laughs> a town of about a thousand people, they have kind of metrics. They understand about what the age breakdowns ought to be in that time and place, and so they kind of work with the data, and they would tell you that actually we would estimate likely the number of boys two years old and under would be in the 10 to 20 little boys. Maybe as few as 10. And there's something inside of me that goes, oh, okay. I can see how you could come back from that. I can see how you could get through that. I can see how nobody would be all that ruffled by that if, if 10 to 20 individuals who are the, really the lowest of the low, the least, the people we don't count, if they disappeared. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, Pastor Dave, that's pretty harsh. I'm going to suggest to you we do this all the time. Watch the disappearance of the least of these and don't even acknowledge it. We have one celebrity have something happen to him and we're all over that. And by the way, if you and I aren't careful, we turn Christmas into this thing that forgets we're in a war. And that the coming of the Christ is not welcomed by all. And there are people today, today, who will lose their eternal life. While we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. And yeah, that should bother me. We can wrap it up and we can put a pretty bow on it. But Jesus came to save the world and his heart hurts for those who don't have him. For those who don't know him. 
for those who do but are being mistreated and are lesser than and are other than and that aren't our natural people. You ever think about this? Is it possible that some of those little two-year-old boys and younger that were slaughtered were children of the shepherds who sang that night? So much easier to not think about what it means to have the full language of O Little Town of Bethlehem happen. All our fears and hopes are met in thee tonight. There's one other thing that bothers me pretty deeply that maybe escapes us at times about Bethlehem. I've pointed it out, but I really want to underscore it. Bethlehem was about an hour and a half walk from the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember? Do you notice it there? In the book of Matthew, chapter 2, when the magi, when the wise men, when this group comes and it's disturbing, and so Herod brings in all of the advisors, those who study about God, those who know the truth. And he asked them, well, where would this even be that the Messiah would show up? And it's like, boom, Bethlehem, duh. Bethlehem. So the people who know stuff about God knows, know, know where he should be. But they cannot be bothered to take an hour and a half walk to see if he's actually showed up. It's fascinating and a truth that maybe gets an eye roll in heaven as well. God so consistently, so regularly, he will come right straight up to you. And then, as Revelation calls it, he stands at the door and knocks. He leaves the last. He's going to be in arm's reach of you, but he will let you make the move. He has gotten so close with the Christ child that the wise men following stars can't tell if it's perched over Jerusalem or over Bethlehem, but the temple priests can't be bothered. Is it possible that you and I could come here every weekend, sing at the top of our lungs, all we need is oh little. And we can get town of Bethlehem out. Silent night. That I am that close to Jesus, but I can't be bothered to reach out, to ask him in. Look, he comes all the way up to you. And it is the danger of those of us who are spiritually experienced. That we'll be able to tell you where he is while never having been there. But the big thing, the big thing you must not leave without acknowledging I plead is that the God of the universe he makes use of the weak because there are some of, of, of us who are here who, no matter how often we've been coming here, we still can't quite believe that he would be coming for us because we know what we are about. We know the thing we struggle with. We know the secret sin. We know the difficulty we're having, that which we cannot get over, the thing we've never told anybody we know. 
And if he knows, he wouldn't come here. Oh. Jesus steps in. He comes to the smallest, to the lowest, to the most broken, to the most difficult, and he says, just, just, just let me, just let me in. Yeah, you get all wrapped up in a gift and a tinsel and Christmas lights and wassail, whatever that is. But it's nothing. It's nothing. Except for except for Jesus comes to the little places. to the little town of Bethlehem, to the broken heart you carry, to the guilt and shame the devil would love you to try to carry all by yourself. And he says, uh, I came here today for you. For you. just before Matthew gets into this whole thing of Bethlehem. Matthew, talking about an interaction between, you remember, the angel who came to tell Mary, don't be afraid, you're pregnant. This conversation goes on then. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You will call him Jesus, Savior, but never forget that in the DNA of God is the I am with you. I am coming to you. I am the God who is near, is here. One more carol. Oh, come. All you faithful, we sang it. This one's a tricky one because there are more than one. How about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? Oh, I pray that that's your heart's cry, not just a lovely Christmas carol sung on the doorstep of some stranger's home. O Come, O Come, please, Lord God, you embedded it in your name that you would come to be with me, that you would walk with me through this day and into tomorrow. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we will sing even another one in just a minute. O Come. And so, we're going to pray. This God who is with us would be very specific and be with you. No matter what you walk in here with, don't walk out alone. So yeah, in the words of Talladega Nights, we will pray to sweet baby Jesus. That's how he chose to be introduced. I roll.
Thank you for joining us for this teaching. Consider hitting the subscribe button to stay tuned for next week. If you'd like to support Crosswalk Chattanooga, go to crosswalkvillage.com Chattanooga and click the Give button at the far right of the ribbon at the top. Notice the campus drop-down menu and select Chattanooga. And if you'd like to come and worship with us on a Saturday morning, we would love that. When you do, please say hi to me. I'd love to learn your name. <laughs>